The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. I think it's a wonderful thing about Christmas music, how it can echo both spectrums of the emotion of the season, the triumphant shouts of joy of hark the herald angels sing, yet the deep, the deep peace that Christ brings. Uh, The music so accurately reflects all that the season brings. I don't know about uh, you, but at this point in the Christmas season, rather than uh, joy and peace, sometimes it's excitement and exhaustion that are the two sides of the coin. I think, I know in our household, there's a frenetic excitement as we get to head to grandparents' house um, for, for uh, Christmas, but uh, there's, there's also some exhaustion after baking, wrapping, shopping, uh, and all that comes with it. And I think that's, that's also um, appropriate in the midst of all of the busyness in baking and wrapping, shopping, is usually when I can start to get on uh, diatribes about uh, blasting the consumerism of Christmas and things like that. But I think all the busyness of preparation is, is just as much a part of Advent. Advent is about preparation. And preparation and waiting is often not calm and peaceful. It's often busy, uh, sometimes anxious and restless. Sometimes it involves suffering and exhaustion. So here we are in Advent with all the preparation and waiting as we head towards Christmas. But in the midst of all of it, we turn to the Word of God, uh, the Word of God and the deep hope and the great joy that will drive our celebration on Friday. In our uh, Advent series, we have been looking at the book of Zechariah, second to last uh, prophet in the, book, or the, in the Old Testament. And as we come to the end of this Advent series, turn with me to Zechariah chapter 14, and we'll read... Uh, the whole chapter here. Listen to God's word. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken. The houses plundered, the women raped. Half of the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee into the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquakes in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. There shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea, 
and it shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site, from the gate of Benjamin to the place of its former gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hanael to the king's winepress. And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they're standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord, and the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. This word that you have given. We pray for understanding. We pray for wisdom that your word would strengthen us with all of the joy and the deep peace that comes from your presence. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This is uh, perhaps uh, a passage that leaves us scratching our head when we read it the first time. It's one of those passages where you read it through the first time and your first reaction is to flip to another passage that's a little bit more edifying. But I think this, this passage is one of those passages that's built on the idea that a picture is worth a thousand words, that God through his prophets is painting a picture for us to communicate something of what he wants his people to know about the hope that is coming. Of course, for a picture to be worth a thousand words, we have to know what we're seeing. And there are some times when I look at a picture and I have no idea what I'm seeing. There's usually a couple of contexts when this happens. I remember probably when one of my children was about three years old, they came to me and brought a picture and said, look, Daddy, what I drew. And I kind of turned the picture this way and and turn it that way. I said, ah, oh, it's a ball with strings coming out. I said, no, Daddy, it's you. And, <laughs> great. So that picture wasn't worth a thousand words. Um, that's not the kind of picture we're dealing with here. We're dealing with a, a, a picture drawn by the Lord of hosts. And so perhaps a better analogy, there are other pictures that I don't know what I'm looking at, and usually they come in the modern art section of art galleries. I have no idea what I'm looking at there. 
I remember, um, I, think it was, I think it was in college when I was first introduced to the art of Makoto Fujimura. I think I'm saying his name correctly, and some of you may have heard of him. His art is it's stunning with his deep, vibrant color, and he's become world-renowned for his combination of modern art with Japanese art tradition. Makoto Fujimura is also a Christian, and his Christian faith deeply influences the art that, that he paints. Um, some of his, his titles, the series titles, include The Four Gospels, Matthew 6, Grace and Hours, Walking on Water and Silence, which is about the trauma of Christian persecution in Japan over two centuries. I look at Makoto Fujimura's paintings and I think, that's beautiful, but I don't know what I'm looking at. And it turns out that rather than the picture being worth a thousand words, I need words to help me understand the picture. And thankfully, he's done that with many of his paintings, giving captions and descriptions of what he's painting and what he's symbolizing. And once, once we see his description and I read his description, suddenly I look at the painting and think, yes, that, that color stands out. What he's done here is, is symbolizing, it's picturing something grand and beautiful. And it is giving me a greater understanding into to what he's, he's uh, signifying. I think that's a bit of what we need in Zechariah 14. We need some words to help us understand the pictures. So once we understand what the pictures are, then we can see what God's revealing to us in all of its depth and its grandeur. So let's see, let's see what we can do to understand these pictures. These pictures of mountains splitting, unique days of no light, cold, and frost, land being turned into plains, rivers flowing out of cities, and sort of zombie-like pictures of plague-impacted peoples. This is what we have before us. But this is an immensely edifying vision of the day of the Lord that God has given through Zechariah. The coming of the day of the Lord is, as you know, the object of Israel's hope. Israel for centuries has been looking ahead to the day of the Lord. But Zechariah's description of the day of the Lord doesn't begin with much hope. Zechariah's description of the day of the Lord begins with the Lord bringing nations against Jerusalem, against God's people, and Jerusalem is defeated and ransacked, and Jerusalem undergoes all of the suffering of warfare. Their treasures are, are taken as spoil. There's plunder, rape, exile, half the people in Jerusalem. I can only imagine God's people standing outside of their ransacked city, or perhaps at this point having come back and, and seen their, their futile attempts to rebuild the glory that they once knew, and hearing this prophecy begin and thinking, I don't think that's the hope we were looking for. Future ransacking, this doesn't seem like good news. But that's only the beginning. I think as one commentator put it well, he said, when the day of the Lord arrives, The Lord brings judgment on the city of Jerusalem for its sin, a judgment that's described in graphic terms. Nevertheless, the ultimate intent is not to annihilate Jerusalem, but to purge Jerusalem of its sin and to refine a remnant of God's people. In these first few verses, when we see Jerusalem ransacked, we need to see God's just judgment against sin, but we also need to see God's purifying work as he brings a people you will note that not all of the people are taken into exile. A remnant of the people are not cut off from the city. This remnant has not been destroyed, but has been purified. 
In fact, if you look up just a couple of verses to Zechariah chapter 13, I think you'll see Zechariah give another description of the same process. Look at what, look at what Zechariah says in chapter 13, verses 8 and 9. He says, In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and shall perish, but one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them and I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. The people that God is saving, the remnant that he is purifying are not exempted from some of the, the pains and the trials of the day of the Lord where the, uh, when it begins, but they are brought through and rescued and refined by God. It's the same thing that Zechariah is describing in chapter 14. Israel faces suffering and pain that purges the wicked from the city. And certainly God's people in the city suffer too, but they are not cut off. And their suffering turns out to be part of God's purifying and sanctifying work in their lives. So the day of the Lord begins with violence that punishes the wicked and refines God's people. But the remnant quickly receive hope. For after gathering nations against Jerusalem... God himself shows up in verse 3 to fight on behalf of his people. And you see in verse 3 and verse 4 that God comes and takes his stand on the Mount of Olives and that the earth shakes and splits under the weight of the coming of God himself. You see, as the, the earth splits, God says that he's providing this pathway, this way of escape for his remnant, for his people to escape the judgment that's happening in the city. And after escaping the judgment, then God himself turns around and uses this very pathway to come to the city with all the holy ones with him. That's the process that verses 4 and 5 are describing. God coming to his city, providing a way of escape, and then coming to the city himself with all his holy ones. After giving this brief five-verse introduction where the day starts violently and God's people undergo uh, suffering, and yet then God himself comes to the city. Zechariah will spend the next 15 verses of this chapter detailing and describing all that happens when God arrives at his city on the day of the Lord. And so I want to spend our time looking at four things, four things that happen when God arrives with his people on the day of the Lord. First, Notice in verses 6 through 8 that the whole earth is impacted by the coming of the Lord. Verses 6 and 7 are are notoriously difficult, and translators and commentators differ on what exactly to do with the words that are, are in the Hebrew text here. But pretty much all commentators seem to be in agreement that in verses 6 and 7, these verses are talking about a return to the first day of creation. And if you look at the description here, a unique day, the Hebrew there is literally day one. The Hebrew is literally day one. It shall be a day one, which is known only to the Lord. What is day one that's known only to the Lord? Uh, well, and we get further description then. There's, there's neither night or day, but even at evening time, there shall be light. A description of this, this return to God forming creation at the very beginning. And so uh, at, when, when God comes, the first thing that happens is that on this day of the Lord, God is recreating or renewing his whole creation at his coming. 
It's a promise that, as you know, Revelation picks up in talking about the new heavens and the new earth with the new Jerusalem. All creation is made new. Revelation describes it as there shall be no night or no darkness there, for the Lord himself is with them and shall be their light. You see echoes of the same description when the Lord comes and renews and recreates his, uh, his creation. I think a, a quick comparison between the fallen state of all creation now and the good, very good creation of God in Genesis immediately highlights the glorious hope of renewed creation, a creation that's remade by the powerful presence of its maker. The, the sin, the suffering, the weight that each of us experiences around us and that creation itself groans under is all an expression of a longing. It all drives our hearts and our minds to long for that very good day at the beginning of creation when there was no sin, no suffering. And so here is God not just returning to that point, but renewing and recreating to bring it to all its completion and all its glory. And so the first thing that God tells Zechariah and that Zechariah reveals to his people is that the day of the Lord shall be a day of recreation, renewing all of creation in its beauty and its glory. But this is just the first thing that God's people get to hope for in the day of the Lord. The second thing we see in verses 8 and 9 is that Jerusalem is restored and it becomes a place of blessing and a place of security. Blessing and security. Jerusalem goes from being a city that is defeated, ransacked, spoil is taken, they are sent into exile. It goes from a city that is defeated to a city that is secure. It goes to a city in which there shall never again be a decree of destruction, but it shall dwell forever in security. But it's not only a place of security, it's also a place that becomes a blessing, not only for God's people, but for all of the people of the earth. You see uh, in verse 8 the picture that on that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem to the eastern sea and to the western sea, summer and winter. These living waters flow out of the city of Jerusalem. And I think um, this vision might bring to mind uh, a, a previous prophecy in the book of Ezekiel. And some of you will remember that in Ezekiel 47, Ezekiel gives this prophecy of this, this river that starts at the temple and flows out to all the earth, flowing out through Jerusalem to the very ends of the earth, deeper and deeper as the blessings that God pours out on his people then flow to all the earth. Revelation 22 also pictures the river of life flowing from the throne of God and through the new Jerusalem. So here we have this picture tracing through the prophets of the Old Testament and, and echoed again in Revelation of this, this city, this renewed, remade city dwelling in security and becoming a blessing to all the earth. Life, blessing, worship in the presence of a reigning God who Zechariah says is now the Lord over all the earth, the King over all the earth, whose name is one. This is a glorious vision of dwelling in the kingdom of God as he reigns on earth and all blessing flows from him to all people. But that, again, is just part of the hope that God's people have in the day of the Lord. 
there's more. Having dealt with the people of Jerusalem, having come to his people and, and having remade creation in all its glory and having dwelt as king over not only Jerusalem but all the earth to pour forth blessing, the Lord now begins to deal with the nations that had opposed God's people. And in verses uh, 12 through uh, 12 and following, particularly, we see that the reigning God completes his judgment against sin and wickedness. And the nations of the earth that were attacking and ransacking Jerusalem just a few verses ago now suffer a plague that the Lord sends upon the nations. And it's a plague of terror. It's a plague that is gruesome to read about and to to hear the description that God's Word gives. But this is not a unique description. When I first read this text, I think, ugh, eyes rotting and tongues rotting. Does the Bible really need to give that kind of gross description? This is really no different than the description of God's judgment and wrath against sin that we get all throughout Scripture. Revelation talks about the day of God's wrath coming against the nations who have opposed him and vultures circling to, to, to circle over the remnant of, of dead bodies from the battle in which the Lord is victorious over his enemies. These are gruesome descriptions, but they're descriptions of the just wrath of God punishing gruesome evil of a world that has rebelled against him. If we are ever tempted to take sin lightly, if we are ever tempted to take lightly our acts of rebellion or the acts of sin in our world around us, certainly these verses, the description of God's just punishment, his just wrath poured out on those who oppose the rightful king of the universe should keep us from taking sin lightly. Sin is an affront to the holy God and it is dealt with appropriately. This is a sobering picture of God's war against his enemies. But note, but note that even this is not without hope for not every person in the nations is destroyed. You'll note that even in the, in the nations that fought against Jerusalem, there are a remnant who survive and those who survive the punishment have survived by the will of God. It says in verse 16, everyone who survives, there are those who survive that God preserves on this day of judgment from all the nations. And everyone who survives will then become a worshiper of this king. Everyone from the nation who survives the judgment now becomes a worshiper. They now come and fall down to worship the king of kings and the Lord of hosts at Jerusalem. What a great picture of God coming to the nations and saying, yes, I am judging sin, but out of even the nations, I am rescuing a remnant who will worship my name, who will be part of my kingdom from Jerusalem. We have perhaps this odd phrase of everyone who survives of all the nations will go up to Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Booths. Why the Feast of Booths? Why doesn't it just say they'll go up to worship God? Why go up year by year to keep the Feast of Booths? Well, there's a couple of reasons for this. The Feast of Booths was a feast that was kept at the very end of the harvest time to celebrate the abundance of the harvest that God had provided to his people. And Israel was given two different reasons for celebrating the Feast of Booths. In Leviticus 23, 
the Feast of Booths was set apart as a feast to remember how the Lord had rescued his people from Egypt and literally redeemed them or harvested them out of Egypt. And so how appropriate it would be then, a feast that is given to remind the people of God's redeeming work is now a feast that all the people of the nations join in celebrating in Jerusalem. But secondly, in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, the Feast of Booths is also called the Feast of Harvest or Ingathering. It's, the com- it's a celebration of the completeness of the harvest, the fullness of the harvest. And so once again, how appropriate that on the day of the Lord, when all things are brought to their completion, that all of God's people from all the world would come. When Jesus says that he wants laborers to go out into the harvest. How appropriate then that at the completion of the harvest, when all the nations are brought into Jerusalem, that every year these nations would come together to celebrate the feast of the fullness of the harvest. It is a feast that celebrates God's redemption and that celebrates God's redemption at the end and the fullness of the harvest. This is the feast that all the nations come to Jerusalem to worship. We have a renewed creation We have the reign of God. We have all nations and a remnant from all the nations coming to worship him. This is a glorious hope. But once again, it's not the end of the hope for God's people on the day of the Lord. Finally, we look then in verses 20 and 21. And here Zechariah describes the, the purification or the sanctification of God's people. We have this description in which everything and everyone will be made holy by the coming of the Lord. We have this odd description that verse 20 begins with, On that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And some of you should be thinking, Well, holy to the Lord, I've heard that phrase before. Uh, That stands out. And you'll remember if you look back to Exodus that holy to the Lord was the phrase that was inscribed on the high priest's turban. And so as the high priest ministered, in the, in the tabernacle and then in the temple, he alone as he dwelt in the temple ministering before the holy of holies wore this band saying, holy to the Lord. But now God says, you know that phrase that was kept for the high priest's turban near the holy of holies in the temple? Now we're going to write that on horse bells. We're going to write that on the things that jangle against sweaty horses running through the city because the fact is everything in this renewed city of God will be pure, will be sanctified, will be set apart to my name, will be holy, will be holy. And then, and then not only the bells of the horses, but we hear the pots in the house of the Lord shall be used as bowls before the altar. Well, the, the, there were bowls in the temple, in the tabernacle that were, were sprinkled and were, were set apart. They were purified or sanctified so that they could be used in the worship of God. But Zechariah now says, every single pot in all of Jerusalem and Judah shall now be holy to the Lord of hosts. So the bowl that you go mix your bread dough in is now holy enough to go take a sacrifice to the Lord. What is what, what is he saying here? This is not saying holiness doesn't matter. It's saying everything from the least to the greatest shall be holy. And if even bells on horses and bowls for mixing are holy, how much more are God's people now holy in his city? 
Zechariah is giving this beautiful description where you and I, think of it, you and I, you and I marked by sin, you and I still bearing the scars of the, of the fall are now holy to the Lord. We have been purified and sanctified. That's the hope that we look forward to. That's what happens when God, the Lord of hosts, comes in his glory on the day of the Lord. He sanctifies all of his people and all the city in his presence. We have a perfectly renewed creation. We dwell securely in the city of God's people that overflows with the blessing of God's reign to the whole earth. We participate in this worship of all God's gathered people, and we do so in completed and final and thoroughgoing holiness. That's the day of the Lord. Isn't that a beautiful vision? Isn't that a vision for God's people to to look forward to and long for? That's a vision to set our hope on. But just a comment before we end on on where we stand. Where do we stand? When was the day of the Lord? Or when is the day of the Lord? And and has it come? Will it come? Where where do we stand in this process? I want you to notice, as you probably have already noticed uh, on, on your own as we've worked through, how Jesus fulfills so much of what Zechariah prophesies. Zechariah pictures a king who stands on the Mount of Olives and comes to the city as its king so that the living waters can flow out to the nations. And he pictures the nations coming to worship and God making his people holy and eliminating a traitor from the house of the Lord. While I was preparing this sermon, I happened to be reading through the book of Mark. And my reading, and if you look in Mark chapter 11 you'll see this this fascinating picture of Jesus. And it says that Jesus drew near to Jerusalem and came and stood on the Mount of Olives. And as he stood on the Mount of Olives, he sent his disciples to find the colt of the donkey. And he gets the colt and he rides into Jerusalem, hailed as the son of David, the king who they have been waiting for. And as he rides into Jerusalem to all the praises of the coming of the kingdom, from there he goes directly to the temple and drives out the traders who bought and sold in the temple. This seems to be directly what Zechariah is talking about here. Jesus says, my house shall now be called a house of prayer for all the nations. It's not a house of trade. seems to be fulfilling Zechariah's vision here. And you might think also of how Jesus says to the woman at the well that if you knew who it was you were speaking to, you would have asked and I would have given you what? Fountains of living water. Fountains of living water that shall pour out not only on Jerusalem, but on a woman of Samaria and on all the nations. And yet even as we see Jesus fulfill so many particular things in this prophecy, we also think, well the full and final picture of the day of the Lord and this thoroughgoing holiness, this thoroughgoing security does not seem to to be fully upon us. We still seem to be waiting for something here. Where Where do we stand? And what Zechariah doesn't tell us is that the day of the Lord will happen in two stages. Christ will come twice. He will come to inaugurate all of these blessings in his birth, death, and resurrection. And then... We wait and we hope, knowing that he will come again to bring all of this to its full completion. We sit between the beginning of the fulfillment and the fulfillment of the fulfillment, if you will. The beginning of God 
fulfilling all of his promises in the final episode or act. I think it's something like we, in this past year, my wife and I moved to a new house, and many of you have gone through the process of buying a house, and you know that there's a day when you sit down and you sign the papers, and the house becomes yours. And you say, we own a house. This house is ours. There's no doubt that it's our house. But for some of you, there are days, and for other of you, there are weeks, and for some of you, there are months before you actually move into that house. And there's a time period where you say, that's my house. It's secure. I know it's my house. But I'm not living there yet. I don't have the final fulfillment of all of its blessings. And I think that's something of a picture of where we stand. As Christ has come and poured out his spirit and guaranteed to us the blessings, all of the blessings here that are talked about in Zechariah's prophecies, they are yours and they are mine in Christ, even though we wait for the final enjoyment of all of the blessings and benefits to be ours when Christ comes again with his kingdom. This is something of the picture here. Christ has come. He has purchased our salvation. He has decisively begun the fulfillment of all of the promises in this passage. And yet we still look ahead. We still look ahead with joy and with hope and yet yearning and longing for this holiness and this security and this blessing and this reign of God. And so I close with with this quote from one commentator who summarized this passage so well. He said, From Genesis chapter 1 through Zechariah chapter 14, to Revelation 22. The point of God's word is that our world's destiny is a thoroughly redemptive transformation. One day the world and you and I will no longer bear the scars and the wounds from its brokenness, but will become so utterly soaked by the presence of God himself that it and we will be transformed into something glorious, radiant, and holy. Until then, all of us who are in Christ, Jew and Gentile, become one community of God's people, picturing as well as longing for this new creation. That's who we are. Isn't that a great hope to look ahead to celebration on Friday morning? Thanks be to God in Christ Jesus for this great hope. Let's pray. Father, you have given us pictures here. You have painted for us pictures that are deep and rich and radiant. For they picture security and blessing and holiness and glory that we shall be a part of. We who bear the scars of our own sin hope for this glorious picture. And we do so, not because we will make changes, but because Christ has come because the presence of God himself was born in a manger and died and rose again that he might bestow this vision, drawing us into his reign that we might be with him forever. Nourish our hearts with this hope, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.